This is the Reading Instruction Show. I am your host, Dr. Andy Johnson. Today's topic, educational research and theoretical models of reading. First, take a look, let's take a look at theoretical models. Educational research is used to create the theories upon which we design educational policies and practices. Theories help us to organize relevant empirical facts. Empirical means they can be observed or measured. We do this in order to create a context for understanding phenomena. So put another way, a theory is a way to explain a set of facts. If reality were a dot-to-dot -dot picture, a theory would be a way to connect a set of data dots. Now theories are built not on a single research study, but on a collection of data gleaned from a variety of different research studies. Good theories are well substantiated. They connect a wide variety of data dots, all of which have been confirmed through experiment and observation. Theoretical models of reading are used to understand the reading process as well as to design and evaluate instructional practices. As such, the theoretical model of reading one adheres to has tremendous impact on the type of reading instruction and interventions that are used. Described here today are two common theoretical models of reading each providing vastly different views of the reading process and struggling readers. The first one is the phonological processing model. The phonological processing model is based on the premise that reading is, reading is simply sounding out words. This is known as the phonological processing model, as I said, or what James Hoffman calls the simple view of reading. Here, the reading process is thought to involve four sub-processes, all occurring at the same time. One, perceiving words, perceiving the words and letters on the page. Two, putting sounds to all the letters in each word. Three, putting all the individual sounds together to identify words. And four, putting the words together to create ideas. These four sub-processes occurring instantaneously in microseconds is thought to create a form of speech in the head with which the reader listens during reading. According to this model, a proficient reader is one who can sound out words automatically and fluently so that the speech in the head is uninterrupted. From this perspective, a struggling reader is one who has a sounding out word deficit. According to this model, what struggling readers need is more sounding out word instruction, phonics, along with lots of drill and practice. The goal of this type of instruction is to develop students' ability to sound out words. The thinking here is that if students were proficient with this skill, all their reading problems would suddenly vanish. But this is not the case. What usually happens is that students may get marginally better at sounding out isolated words in the short term, 
but there is little transfer of these skills to authentic reading situations. And in the long term, there is no noticeable improvement in students' ability to create meaning during authentic reading situations. The phonological processing model is limited because it does not account for a wide array of data, including the four facts below. Fact number one, proficient readers do not look fully at one-third of the words on the page. This indicates that readers are using more than the words and letters on the page to create meaning. They're using semantic and syntactic information, along with background knowledge to fill in the blanks as they read. Fact two, proficient readers often insert words that are semantically or syntactically correct. Again, this points to the fact that information besides what is on the page is being used to construct meaning. Third, the ratio of corticothalamitic nerve fibers, fibers to the thalamocortical fibers is 10 to 1. In other words, simple words, during the act of reading, almost 10 times more information is flowing from the cortex down to the thalamus than is flowing up from the page to the thalamus and then to the cortex. This, again, shows what is in the head is being used along with text clues to create meaning. And the fourth fact, information from the cortex is used to direct the eyes during the act of reading. In other words, Higher-level processes drive or mediate lower-level processes. Now, let's take a look at the neurocognitive model. The neurocognitive model, sometimes referred to as the psycholinguistic model, accounts for the four facts above. Here, reading is defined as the process of creating meaning with print. During this meaning-making process, the brain uses three cueing systems to recognize words on the page, phonological, semantic, and syntactic. Readers use what is in the head, the schemata, to make sense of what is on the page. Also, during the process of reading, our eyes fixate on approximately 60% of the words on the page. Of these fixated words, our eyes usually stop on only one or two letters. Since we can perceive only those things which our eyes upon which our eyes fixate, it is clear that our brain fills in the blanks to create meaning during the reading process. It is clear as well that the eyes are directed by information in the cortex much more so than information on the page during the act of reading. Syntactic cues, semantic cues, and minimal letter cues are used along with information in our cortex to confirm or revise words as the brain seeks to create meaning with print. According to the neurocognitive model, a proficient reader is one who can orchestrate a variety of strategies to construct meaning 
during the process of reading. These strategies include using knowledge and contextual clues to predict and infer, monitoring comprehension, and employing fix-up strategies when comprehension breaks down. From this perspective, a struggling reader is one who is inefficient in the use or coordination of these strategies. What struggling readers need then, according to the neurocognitive model, is direct instruction related to meaning-making strategies, direct instruction related to the four word identification strategies, that would be morphemic analogy, a morphemic analysis, analogy, context clues, and phonics. And they need activities to develop all three cueing systems. And these should occur within a meaningful context to the greatest extent possible. Now, let us transition slightly to take a look at research and the theoretical models. Theoretical models are the lens through which reality is viewed and interpreted. However, clinging too tightly to a particular theoretical model can constrain the type of research undertaken, limit the research questions asked, and constrict the type of data collected. And with the thickening of the lens, the theory becomes increasingly data resistant, meaning that only data that support the theory are considered valid. New data that fall outside the theoretical model are either ignored or forced into a preformed, reductively inflexible box. In this way, the continued growth and evolution of the field is stymied. This appears to be what has happened in fields such as special education, where the phonological processing model dominates. Despite a wealth of research data from a wide variety of areas supporting a neurocognitive model of reading, there are still many researchers who choose to understand the reading process only in terms of the phonological processing model. I call them sounder-outers. The sounder-outers design research studies to examine the effectiveness of sounding out word instruction. Their research invariably finds that sounding out word instruction is effective in helping students to sound out words. Typical sounding out research goes something like this. A treatment group is given intensive instruction in sounding out words. A control group does not receive intensive instruction in sounding out words. On post-treatment measures assessing students' ability to sound out words, lo and behold, the treatment group scores significantly higher than the control group. Or else, students are pulled out of their normal classroom and given intensive one-on-one -on -one sounding out word instruction by specially trained research assistants. After weeks of intensive sounding out word instruction, it is found that these students have made statistically significant gains in their ability to sound out words as determined by sounding out word measures. 
Now, since the research studies like these meet all the U.S. Department of Education's requirements for scientifically-based research, sounding out word instruction is deemed to be scientifically-based reading instruction. Commercial sounding out word programs are then designed on this sounding out word research. They stamp research-based on the side of the box. Schools buy these expensive programs and require teachers to use them with fidelity. This means that teachers are told they must follow the directions exactly as written in the instructions, regardless of whether or not it meets their students' needs. However, even if the tightly controlled sounding out research is scientifically based and methodologically sound, it is based on the false premise that reading is simply sounding out words. Any research based on a false premise will always give you misleading results. As well, some of the research questions rarely, if ever, considered by sound routers are these. Does sounding out word instruction enhance or impedes students' ability to create meaning with print? Is sounding out word instruction more effective than meaning-based instruction in helping students create meaning with print? When comparisons are made with comparable groups and comparable teaching, can you say with certainty that sounding out word instruction is the most effective form of instruction to use in terms of the long-term effectiveness on comprehension, word identification, fluency, vocabulary, and or voluntary reading? Is sounding out word instruction the most effective form of reading instruction for all struggling readers? This has been the Reading Instruction Show. I've been looking at educational research and theoretical models of reading.